it's it's so good to be with you guys at this time of year. It's it's nice to see families back, having people in town, college kids are back. It's that time. I am I am like super excited about this time of year. As it gets closer, I turn into like Ralphie from a Christmas story. Like I get really excited. Um our family's coming next this week, next week, this week, Sunday, this week, and we're going to Disneyland. Uh, I'm really excited about that. Uh, it's magical even when it's not Christmas, so they might need to, like, defibrillate me or defibrillate, whatever it is. Um, let's pray. Uh, look at a short text, um, and hopefully it'll be meaningful for you. And we have a few uh, announcements and our offering coming up, and then we'll be dismissed. But let's pray. Thank you for your mercy, God, in our lives. Thank you for your careful attention to the world which you have made. Thank you for your presence. Forgive us, God. Our hearts run cold with greed and violence. Throughout the land, Father, there is outcry as it always has been the case in your world which you have made for our good and father we long especially at this time of year as we turn our minds toward jesus's birth and the incarnation we pray father for your help we pray for your arrival all of the arrivals that we can handle But we pray for your ultimate arrival, Father, when you bring an end to the sadness and sorrow and you cure us of our lust for power and you bring about uh, inclusion and acceptance and love between all peoples. Father, help us to labor uh, with the energy you give us toward that future, Uh, but help us, Father, to rest and to live in step with that hope, even now. Uh, We praise you for these scriptures, which continue to confront us and encourage us generation after generation. We thank you. It's like a light in the darkness for us, God, to hear uh, these words. Uh, So we pray for uh, open minds uh, and that we might encounter you. Uh, We pray this through Christ the Lord. Amen. Okay. America's favorite passage. What is it? At least Christian marketing's favorite passage. Okay, that's number one. I knew someone would say that. What's number two? Picture like the Christian bookstore ties, mints, T-shirts, pictures. There it is. Jeremiah 29, 11, of course. Uh, that, that's where we're going to spend our, our time uh, this afternoon. I have no slides for you. Uh, my apologies. Um, you'll have to crack, crack your book or open your app. Jeremiah chapter 29. Um, and and as, uh, as has been said throughout our time already, uh, we are uh, in a time of year uh, that I think has been helpful for the church um, over the years. I think I, I can see ways which it could be constricting and feel uh, boring. But I think with the right mindset, uh, this, this time of year, Advent can, can be really centering uh, for God's people. 
mostly because it makes us do, and I love this, I, I feel like as I get older, I need a tutor. I need somebody to draw my attention. I need devices and things to call to mind those things which I would uh, forget or disremember. But Advent summons us to acknowledge darkness and it asks us to be honest about whether or not we believe or have any sort of confidence about a change, a light dawning or a light having dawned in that darkness. Does that make sense? So it's, it's this period of acknowledging our need to wait for God. Some of us love the idea of waiting because we didn't want to do anything anyways. I fall in that camp. Um, some of us despise the notion of waiting because it goes against our strong work ethic uh, that we will bring about the kingdom of God, whether or not there's a king. Uh, but this is, this is a moment for us to, to remember we need God. We need God to break into history as he has in the incarnation, which coming up we'll, we'll think about on Christmas, Christmas Day. Uh, but we also need God to come arrive again. And maybe in new and surprising ways, even the coming of God in our own lives now. Uh, but Advent is a time for coming to grips with our hope. Now, I, I, I meant to include this last week, um, but, uh, Yeah, my gears get turned and then I lose track of what needs to be said. Uh, But there's a line in T.S. Eliot's East Coker. It's a part of four quartets. Really challenging, but it's worth the challenge to read it. Very rewarding poem, uh, collection of poems. Uh, But he says in East Coker, I shall, uh, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like, uh, I said to my soul, Be still and let the darkness come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God. A few lines later, he says, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. That makes zero sense if you're a practicing Christian. But does it? Think about it. Because he'll go on to say, because hope for the wrong thing would not be a good thing to hope for. And sometimes our hope has been curated for us by things which ought not tell us what to hope in. All kinds of things play a role in shaping our uh, imagination about the future and what's coming. And we find ourselves either in step with or discouraged by whether or not that hope is coming true. Does this make sense? We can hope for the wrong thing, imagining that's exactly what we should hope for. And so I love Eliot's very poetic, very like head-scratching way of saying, be still and abandon your hopes. They're too small. Unless your hope is something like which 
Christian scripture gets at, you may find yourself hoping and waiting in vain. I, I know this to be the reality in my life. On a regular basis, the thing I'm hoping for and longing for gets checked or pushed so that at the center is a hope big enough to be worth hoping in. Um, but this is what Jeremiah is Jeremiah and Isaiah last week in, in those middle chapters of Isaiah, but especially Jeremiah. Jeremiah wants to make sure that those listening to this little letter in the middle of this book have the right hope. Because if their hope is off even a little, and you can add religious language to your hopes to make it seem like this is a good thing. You can say things like blessed or I was specific about it in my prayers or whatever. And you can, you can couch it in uh, a kind of saccharine, spiritualized terms and make it seem like the thing you want is really what you should be. I'll give you an example. I know many young men uh, who have said to me things like, I want to make a lot of money because then I can give. And I, I, I want to ask, really? I think you probably just want to make a lot of money. <laughs> that's, that's a noble thing, but watch it. Because that's not necessarily what the need always is but we can have these kind of dangerous understandings of what God's really after but they sound wonderful Jeremiah Jeremiah's challenge is something like that I want to make a lot of money so I can give Jeremiah comes along and says careful there careful there you might just want to make a lot of money (laughs) but since you said so that I can give now you feel great about it (laughs) now you can go after it Jeremiah 29. As it turns out, I think, America's favorite verse, which Christian marketing, whoever figured out putting that on candy and coffee and T-shirts and pants and everything else you can buy with this verse on it, uh, they really, they, they did something really amazing in terms of, like, being economical. They are smart. They made a lot of money because it's a very encouraging passage. But they've also harmed all of us. <laughs> and they've, they've put us in a situation where we may have not heard this passage. And I'll show you what I mean. Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, son of Shaphan, Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, okay, let's pause for a moment. Uh, Apart from a bunch of uh, very foreign-sounding names, this passage is filled with a lot already. It's it's presupposed that we know what's meant where they are, where Jeremiah is situated, whom he's addressing. 
And so quickly, uh, I want to make us aware of this. In, in 597 BCE, Babylon is rising. And the threat is already, uh, people are aware. Assyria is waning. Babylon is becoming more and more powerful. And that means certain things for the world. And, and here, in five, around 597, if you were a Judahite, because by that time, most of the tribes of Israel had vanished because of Assyria. There's this little, I don't know if you remember that, if I mentioned that last week, but there's this little outpost in the south in Jerusalem. And Isaiah, in the first, he opens his book and he says, Jerusalem is like a hut in a mown cucumber patch, standing all alone. Her defense cities to the west, Lachish, have been mown down by Assyria, and she's just there all by herself. Well, Jerusalem's greatest fears begin to come true around this time. And the first thing the Babylonians do is they take away the uh, the, the power brokers in the capital city. The priests, the prophets, the politicians, the metal workers, everything you need to be economically stable and politically ordered. The Babylonians take them and they bring them a long ways away to the north, to Babylon, Babylonia. So what's left in Jerusalem is this feeling like we survived because of our faith. We survived. They got taken into it, but we maintain a residence in the holy city. Now, ten years later, Babylon is not finished. They come back and mow down Jerusalem. And it's, it's rough. This is, I've said before, the 9-11 of Israel's story. This is such a decentering moment in their story. Oddly, it's the time where most of the literature we read comes to us. It's a time of great creativity. There's a minority uh, continuing to be faithful and to practice their faith in exile. But Jeremiah is speaking at this time after 597, before 587. And in Jerusalem, how you doing? In Jerusalem, uh, there are people uh, assuming that they're prophets. They're like itinerant ministers. Have you met these folks? They still exist. They go around and tell you the future, what God told them. Be careful of <laughs> listening to them. Uh, careful of listening to me, I guess. Make sure you pray and listen carefully to everyone who's speaking. But these men, you got to be careful with what they were saying. They were going around to the people left in Jerusalem and saying, this is only going to last, guys, for two more years. And we're going back uh, to the way things were. And uh, one prophet in particular uh, really ha- dis- disagrees with Jeremiah. God summons Jeremiah and says to him, build a wooden yoke. You know, like a yoke you put on your neck to show you are a, a worker for somebody else. You're a, you're a laborer. 
you belong to, to another. Make a wooden yoke, and I want you to, to send letters to, like, Edom, the king of Edom, the king of Ammon, the king of Moab, the king of Sidon. I want you to tell all of them that you will wear a yoke. Babylon is going to put you under his power. You are going to be subject to him. And there's nothing you can do about it. Well, Jeremiah goes around Jerusalem apparently wearing this yoke. And this guy, Hananiah, who also believes that he's a prophet, says to Jeremiah, give me that stupid thing. He smashes it on the ground. He says, this is garbage. You're going around telling everyone that Babylon's going to take over and we're going to follow suit and end up in exile. But that's not what God told me, Jeremiah, two more years at tops, and we're going to be restored. And Jeremiah says, if that's true, God hasn't spoken to me, because what he told me is that this thing's going to last until Babylon's out of gas, which will be about 70 years. So the prophet Hananiah dies. It's the last line of chapter 28. For this lying, God says, I did not send him. His encouraging, optimistic message that sounded great and filled people with faith, it sounded like the right thing to say, and it'd be really easy to listen to Hananiah when Jeremiah's over there saying, this thing's going to last until your life is over, and this guy's saying, no, two more years. It's really tempting to listen to him than Jeremiah. But, but God makes it clear who he's spoken to. Jer- this other prophet is seen to be a liar. He's not telling the truth. And he's hurting people. So Jeremiah says, I bet the same garbage is going on up north in exile. So he sends a letter to those officials who are up in exile. You following me? And he writes this letter. And it says this is at the time uh, when, when uh, uh, our, our cream of the crop are in exile. I want to make sure that what I'm dealing with here, these optimistic messages that this ain't going to last a long time, I want to make sure that they're not falling victim to that lie up there. So watch what he says. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. It's a quotation from uh, both Genesis 1.28 at the creation story and Exodus 1.7. Multiply there. Multiply there in, in exile. Multiply there. And do not decrease. But seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its shalom you will find your shalom. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets, your diviners, who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise 
and bring you back to this place, that is, Jerusalem. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for shalom and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Is this passage encouraging or discouraging? Both. <laughs> it's, it sucks and it's great. Like, the things he's saying are really hard to hear. But it's not a reason for despair. In fact, this darkness is a cause for great joy. Now, there's something different that happens beginning in verse 4. I don't know if you caught it. But it ain't Nebuchadnezzar who sent Israel into Babylon. Who is it? The Lord says, I, I sent you. He says it twice. I sent you. Saying like an accident in history, the one with the most power gets to decide where people live. The Lord says, I did this because Israel ain't the only show in town. God has every nation on his radar. He says, I sent you there. He says, and I know how badly you'd like to go home and get back to business. I know how, how it sounds faithful to dream and plan and hope for a return. But I'm telling you, you will be long dead before your dreams come to fulfillment. Your kids might get to experience that plan or dream. But you're in this for the long haul. You ain't going nowhere. Now that's discouraging. If the place where you are tells you that something is wrong and nothing is ideal and you're told, this is your new home. Buy. Don't rent. <laughs> right? Uh, Gonzalo and Don would do well in Babylon in ex- exile, right? Like, Buy homes. You're, you're going to pay off the mortgage. You're going to be here for a while. Make this your home. This ain't our home. I don't want to be here. I don't want to live in Babylon. We're Israel. Jerusalem, the holy city where the presence of Yahweh resides, is our home. I'm going to live in Babylon. Oh, you'll live in Babylon your whole life. Settle down. Well, what should we do? Should we just wait? Like, no. Get Busy living. Open businesses. Plant gardens. Get married. Have kids. When your kids grow up, give, the, give them away at their wedding. And then when they grow up, they'll do the same thing. We're talking about a long time here. Generations lived where they don't want to be. Earlier in the book, Jeremiah has God saying, that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is God's servant. God is doing something. The message to the exiles 
from the Lord through Jeremiah is something like, I'm doing something here. It ain't all about rushing back to your success or to the economic stability of Solomon's day, which, by the way, was filled with idolatry of all sorts. It ain't about rushing back to the moment that was pristine in your mind. Now, to move forward is to live in exile. How would we do with this? I mean, this this is a tall order. I've used this analogy. I think I used it last week. What if our church couldn't grow until we were dead and our kids were the ones who got to experience the church having a resurgence? We'd pack up. Like, no, we've got to get a plan together. I'm not saying God's saying that. My point is, if the thing that brings us the most anxiety, God told us that's your reality, be faithful in it, could we handle it? And that's exactly what these exiles are being asked to do. Live in a foreign place among foreign people who hate our guts. Oh, and don't just have buildings and, and, and businesses and, and families and gardens. Also, here's the kicker. Seek the shalom of the city. Seek the shalom of the city. We ain't even in exile here in de- the desert. Uh, summer felt like an exile to me. Uh, <laughs> But, but it's not exile. It's relatively free. I don't know how well of a job I do seeking the peace of a city that's already friendly to me. <laughs> right in Palm Springs where I live. But here he says, for the enemy, I'm keeping you safe in Babylon. Now seek the welfare of the city of your enemies. The place you don't want to be, I'm going to bring life. You're going to be a source of life and blessing while you hate it. While you are hating your situation, I'm doing something. Be a blessing to the Babylonians. Seek the welfare of their city. I don't think this is a call to get involved in politics in Babylon. That, that would be strange given the situation. But it's a call to be neighborly at the very least. Then he goes on to say, to the extent that the city experiences shalom... Shalom, not just like absence of war, but wholeness, being made whole. To the extent that the city experiences wholeness, your wholeness will be found there. It's one in the same. How good Babylon does is how good you do. Babylon is your home now, too. What a call. What a challenge. And I I think we could have lots of discussions about what it looks like as the people of God to still be Advent people, people waiting for God to arrive. And to talk about what might it look like us for us to wait and seek the welfare, the 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 wholeness, the peace place where we live. Faith now looks like, this is crazy, surrendering to the enemy. And if you don't surrender and put on the yoke of Babylon and get comfortable in your new home, you are not faithful. 
all of this like battle cry, we're going home, don't listen to the, the pessimists. They're the ones that are faithless. That's arrogance. The truly faithful are the ones who can humbly accept their defeat and love those around them. I, I personally believe this is a message the church today would reject wholeheartedly. We don't like any of this. I'm a part of that church. I don't mean like they, I, would, I would listen, but they wouldn't. I mean that th- this is a tough order. But then he goes on. It's not mere like your story is over. Uh, I read Jürgen, Jürgen, Jürgen. Uh, it's a very... Uh, <laughs> European name, Jürgen Moltmann. Uh, he wrote a book, little book, called In the End, the Beginning. Uh, and he said something there that uh, got a hold of me. He said uh, something like, um, God is not a God of farewells, but of beginnings, of greetings. That the God of, of Israel isn't a God who is characterized by bringing things to an end with no beginning. Babylon is not the end. The last word will not be offered by Babylon. The New Testament suggests the last word will not be offered by Rome or by death itself. That God is a God of beginnings. He's a God for whom... Uh, each day is a new start, right? Lament, the book of Lamentations says so. The third, third poem in Lamentations says that. Babylon will not have the last word. Though a generation or two will live and die in exile and be a blessing to their enemies, God hasn't thrown his plan in the garbage. And that's a source of hope in the present. Because he he goes on to say, and he stresses, I, Anoki, I, I know the plans that I have. I know what I'm doing. I haven't abandoned you. I sent you there, and I plan to allow you to have shalom as well, and I plan to bring you out. I sent you there, and I plan to bring you out. Look at the tension there. Like we, we have to, or the exiles at least, have to navigate the tension between have God having sent them, but one day God will bring them out. It's a, it's a call to look with the long view. To look beyond even the present losses and trauma to a new beginning. He says, I know the plans. What would be better for you than seeking a way to get back home, seeking a way out of your situation, seeking to put a positive spin on it, what would be better is for you to seek me. Because your future and your hope and your shalom are all things that I've organized and arranged for you but they are with me. And you don't need to wait until you go back to Jerusalem to start praying to me. 
you can begin now in exile. As you're seeking the welfare of the city, seek me. You're not, by seeking me doesn't mean that now I have to get you home. You ever found that it doesn't work like that? You ever found that if you nag God a long time, you still don't necessarily get what you ask for? I heard this week somebody say something like that. It was, it was like, um, the reason you don't have what you want from God is because you haven't asked strong enough. You haven't asked with enough intentionality. These exiles couldn't ask strong enough to push God to the place where he would be like, okay, you win, no more exile. But that doesn't mean they still shouldn't seek him. Even though he will not necessarily hasten to what they ask if they say, I want to go home, that's not what it looks like to seek God in prayer now. It looks like what is God up to even though things are less than ideal? What is God doing? We can still seek God even though we're not going to get what we want and still partner with, participate in His great will in what we might have considered a less than ideal situation. But that's what it looks like to have faith in waiting, at least for Jeremiah. All right, we'll wrap this up. We ain't in exile. I know that. Uh, I'm not suggesting that Palm Springs is uh, Babylon, uh, that someone... Made me, made me live here or something like that. But I do think the thing that these exiles are called to is very similar to what it means to practice hope in the church wherever we are. Because we, we know that we can't end this long exile of attending funerals and and sick family members, and homelessness, and violence, and all of the things we either witness through our telephone, or they're not telephones, I still call them telephones, I guess, your, your, your phone, uh, and what we witness on our own street corners, uh, we, we, we are waiting for that to end. We can't end it on our own. There's no strategy we could come up with to fix the problem. It requires a source beyond our energy. But we're called to faithful, creative waiting. I don't mean creative like becoming artistic, though I may mean that, but I mean being creative with how we live our lives. You may not find yourself in the blessed hereafter tomorrow. You may be here for another 70 years. One day, though, because God knows the hope he has for these exiles, God knows the hope he has for us. We might struggle most of or all of our lives, but we're still summoned to seek the Lord and the welfare of those around us. I think what Jeremiah is asking of these freshly exiled uh, leaders is what Jesus asks of his people today just to wait for his return, to live, not worrying that we need to be somewhere else because God shall care for all things. We can rest. We can buy, not rent, right? Um, Well, I can't, but um, 
we, we, we rent a really nice place. Uh, Palm Springs is ridiculous. I'll have to move out here somewhere. Uh, the price anyway. Right? Do you know this? Yeah, yeah it's insane. Um, it, whatever it is, like a million dollars for a two-bedroom home. Forget it. Um, but, but stay put. Be faithful where you are. And seek God. Pray for your city. Jesus, we'll close with this because we're going to have the Lord's Supper. Jesus prayed in the garden for God to cause the cup. Jeremiah speaks of a cup in chapter 24. To cause the cup to pass from him. In other words, don't make me go through this. Don't make me spend 70 years in Babylon. Don't allow the Romans to kill me. Don't allow these brothers and sisters of mine, to hand me over to Rome. Don't, don't put me through this, God. He might have well have set it to a wall. Right? God did not answer his prayer in the affirmative. Jesus cries out to a, a bronze sky. God doesn't deliver him from the cross. God doesn't deliver this generation from Babylon. But he does deliver him from the cross. But he does deliver them from Babylon. But it's on the other side of having learned how to suffer without any quick answers and to seek God while you suffer. It doesn't make a ton of sense and is fair to criticize for an an onlooker, but it's the heartbeat of the thing we call Christian hope is to maintain faith through suffering toward a new end. The one who becomes a human being, the God who takes on flesh and blood and bones and filth and all of the things we experience, that same God goes through what the exiles went through, what we all go through, demonstrating that faithfulness looks like finding a way to trust God in less less than ideal situations. With that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the bread and the cup, which remind us that out of agony and pain come great hope, great assurance and life, uh, great confidence. Father, you cause us in our lives to be settled because of this hope. You free us from the anxiety of, of getting out or getting somewhere new and And set us in a place where we can send roots down, love our neighbors, and give our hearts. Father, I pray that as we look at the cross, you help us to become unencumbered from the plans and things which take us away from what you desire. God, help us to not hope for the wrong thing. Help us to make peace with the fact that things won't always be as they shall be, but to be faithful regardless. We need your help, Father, in this. We need the bread and the cup. We need the energy which comes from your body and blood to do this, just like you have done it and opened a way for us to become sufferers and hopers at the same time. God, help us to uh, be a blessing to those around us. Just like your 
body and blood was broken and poured out. And we ingest it here, God. Help us to break open our own lives and pour them out for the sake of others. We pray uh, in the name of Christ our Lord and to His glory. Amen.